Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Oh, good. We're all here. (laughs) That's great. It's a privilege for me to be here at Bemis Point. Uh, This is not the first time. This year is not the first time I've been here. When I was a, uh, a, a teenager, my dad served a church in Fairview, Pennsylvania, just west of Erie, and uh, my grandmother died, and when she died, she left my parents enough money with the instructions that they were to buy a home. And uh, my parents didn't have any equity, so they went looking for a house, and they, uh, they ended up wanting, they decided they wanted to buy a lake house. So they went looking on all the lakes all over northwestern Pennsylvania and, south, and, and western New York. And, uh, you know, you couldn't find a lot for the amount of money that my grandmother left them, but they found a home over on Finley Lake. Long story short, they were asking uh, $90,000 for this house, and my parents had $55,000. And my dad couldn't make enough money, uh, didn't make enough money to take out a mortgage, didn't have enough equity to do that. And, um, and when we went through the house, it was beautiful, lakefront, right on one of the, the coves in, in Finley Lake. And, um, and then my dad asked what the price was, and the man said, you know, $90,000. And his face just fell. And the guy said, why? He says, well, I, this is all I have. I can't do any more. He said, well, you just wait right here with your kids. And uh, he and his wife went up in the house. His name was Man, Mr. Man. And they went up in the house, and about five minutes later, they came walking out, and they had bowls of ice cream for each of us. And uh, they told my parents, you know, we have five houses, we've owned 20 cars, we've had three or four businesses, it's not going to hurt us to lose money on selling you this house. They sold my parents that house, but that, for the next 15 years, was the place where my family went on vacation. And uh, my dad would take his entire month of vacation in July, and he would go to, uh, come to western New York, and we'd live on Finley Lake, and we would visit Methodist churches in the area. And I worshipped in Bemis Point back in the village. I remember worshiping at this church, as well as Finley Lake and Mayville and a couple of other churches around, and we'd also run up to Pennsylvania to see some of those churches as well. And in the evenings, uh, we would go over to the Camp Finley Bible Conference, where I was exposed to teachers from Asbury Seminary for the first time in my life, which is where I ended up going to seminary. And uh, later on in my life, I met and married a girl who was born and raised in Frewsburg. And, uh, and her mom is buried in the cemetery in Frewsburg. She was baptized in the Methodist church there. She accepted Jesus at Camp Finley. And, uh, and then later in my life, I came back to Erie to serve a church. I served Christ United Methodist Church on the west side. Dave and Sandy Clavon, who are members of this church, were members of that church when I was the pastor there. And, uh, and I was on the board of Camp Finley for a while. So uh, I'm used to snow. I don't live in snow anymore, so thanks for arranging this for me. Uh, I was watching the Facebook feed about the, about the Columbus this morning from some of the people, and they're calling this event Snowmageddon in Columbus. They have six inches of snow. They are such wimps. Um, anyway, it's a privilege for me to be here. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you about Bemis Point is I, I, uh, about six years ago, Dan McGuire and Debbie Meter came to visit me in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, they wanted to talk with me about Dan's impending retirement and wanted me to give them some advice about transitional things, and I was glad to do that. And uh, it was a year ago this week that I got a call from Bill and Kristen because when they were students in the Beeson program at Asbury, I was the president at Asbury, and I knew them there. 
And they asked me if I'd be willing to step into this coaching role with them. So it's been a gift for me to be reconnecting with this part of the world. And uh, it's been a gift for me to walk with them and your staff and your staff parish relations committee and your board. And I want to tell you, I, I know a little bit about pastoral transitions. I've been through a couple of my own. And I was a district superintendent for a while. I'm, I'm in recovery for that. I hope you don't hate me for that. But, but I've helped churches go through transitions. And, and your church is about uh, two and a half years in, only six months in, to what would be normal for transition. And what makes that extraordinary is that, you know, uh, Bill and Kristen are following, uh, you know, Dan, who was your pastor for 33 years. So that was no small thing. Uh, you have done great. They are doing well. Uh, I'm excited about the future. Yesterday we spent the day together uh, taking a look at their, your board and your pastors are involved in a six-month visioning process, which they will be vetting to you in various small groups in the next, over the, 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 the middle six months of the year, so that when you get to the September of next year, it's go time. It's go time. And I'm excited about what I see. I'm excited about what I hear it's been a privilege for me to be a small part in what's happening here. Uh, God's Word is found in Ephesians chapter 5 today, beginning at verse uh, 15. Listen to Paul's words, the Word of God. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this one verse, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what does God want for our lives? I mean, I have this conviction that many of us have a hard time knowing because our lives are filled with so many good things that we often miss the great thing that God is calling us to. Now, at first glance, this speaks to how we use our time. Now, you and I only have a certain number of hours on the earth. They're a deposit from God given to us as a gift to be used for kingdom purposes and the well-being of others. And we need to learn how to use our time wisely. So how do we spend our time? Well, let me tell you. The average high school student will spend more time watching television than attending school. The average single guy spends between three and four hours a day playing video games. And it's not just the single guys. How many of us have one of these? How many of us have a smartphone or an iPod or an iPad, something like this? If somebody 15 years ago would have told you that you could have something that you would hold in the palm of your hand that would give you access to almost all of the information in the world 24-7, and you would use it searching the internet for dog pictures, doing stupid things, or taking pictures of whatever you're having for dinner and posting it on Facebook as if people really want to see what you're having for dinner. And ladies, don't even get me started about Candy Crush. How do we spend our time? 
Paul speaks a word of caution about how we use our time at the very beginning of this text. He says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see, when our hobbies overtake our lives, when we don't have enough time for God or his people or his word because of our recreational activities or our online game or our absolute obsession with social media or some other thing that consumes the time in our lives, that is unwise. It is foolish. It's a foolish waste of time and energy and sometimes even money. Now, are these things evil? No, not in and of themselves. In fact, they can be used for good. But we need the balance of knowing God's will and what that brings to our lives. We live in an information age, a time of constant bombardment by the the next, the newest, the best, the latest information. And each one claims to be telling us the truth, right? But how do we know what is true? How do we make decisions and choices based upon that knowledge? How does one come to know what is true and then regulate the actions and attitudes of our lives based upon what we know to be true. Now, the technical word for this discipline is epistemology. Aren't you impressed? That proves I went to school one day. But simply stated, epistemology is the study of how we come to know that something is true. The Bible calls this discernment. Allowing the Spirit of Jesus living in us to shape our hearts and minds so that when we hear something billed as the next, the newest, the best, and the latest, we'll be able to discern whether it's good, true, right, and just. The Christian life is about knowing and doing God's will in community. And the longer I live and the longer I follow after Jesus, the more I want to know God's will, the more I want to know God's way, the more I want to know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will in my life. And somewhere along the way, we have either neglected or forgotten the spiritual discipline of discernment. So what would it look like for us, the community of faith, to live with a higher degree of discernment? See, we often struggle with God's will in our lives because we're so obsessed with our own issues. We live in a day when individualism is always and almost often, almost always elevated above community. Personal feeling and opinion often trumps any and every other reality, regardless of whether it's rooted in truth or not. See, the truth is, discerning God's will is often a lost art in our day because there are this variety of information sources that are often accepted as true. Now, here are some of those uh, sources. I had somebody say, well, I saw it on the news. Really? It was on the news. That means it's true? You know, the news is often reported with unbridled bias, either from the right or from the left. It's no longer the neutral fifth estate, so can it be trusted? I had somebody else tell me, I saw it on the Internet. Really? The assumption is that if something is on the internet, then it must be true. In the famous words of Abraham Lincoln, the thing about quotes from the internet is that they're hard to verify their authenticity. (laughs) If you didn't get that, ask the person laughing why they're laughing right now. Another person says, I got it in an email. Really? 
Would you believe that somebody recently forwarded me that ancient email from Bill Gates that states he's going to give $1,000 to everyone who forwards this email to 10 friends? That thing's been circulating for a decade, and people still fall for it. Come on, people. Bill Gates isn't reading your emails. That's what we pay the federal government to do these days. (laughs) Somebody else told me, I saw it on Facebook. Really? Facebook can be a great social tool for good, but when it comes to fact-checking and truth-telling, reader beware. Somebody else said, I heard it from a friend or a reliable source. This used to be called gossip. But in church circles, it's called sharing a prayer request (laughs) or Sunday school sharing. We hear it through the the rumor mill, and it almost lends credence to it. You know, the old saying goes, a lie travels halfway around the world before truth puts her shoes on. The problem is, our problem is that the truth is often too boring for us. Sensationalism has always tickled the human imagination and stimulated our senses. And the truth is often much more boring than the sensational lies we spread. Folks will often form their opinion without checking facts and apart from or devoid of any spiritual influence or discernment, even in the church. Isn't that true? I mean, I have a friend who recently sent me a Facebook post about the report of the Third Vatican Council. Did you hear about the Third Vatican Council? (laughs) Apparently, Pope Benedict appointed, called for a Third Vatican Council shortly after his election, and they've been working, and they just came out with an announcement that all faiths are the same and lead to God, lead to heaven. And this person wanted me to do something about it. So I did. I checked Snopes. Guess what? It's not true. She'd expended all this time and energy on something that had no truth at all. Or the couple I know who refuses to attend worship because of something they heard the church did. The church I serve is in the middle of a major renovation. And you know from your own history here, when dust starts to fly, so do rumors. And I recently had a conversation in my church with a guy who had literally worried himself sick because he had heard that we were going to take the cross out of our worship center. That's patently not true. He's well now. Or there was another couple, we're renovating so that we can move all of our traditional worship back into our old sanctuary and start a second contemporary service where all of our worship is taking place right now at 11 o'clock. So we'll have contemporary and traditional at the same time in the same building. And, uh, and can you imagine the rumors that started with that? I had lunch with a couple not too long ago, and the, the wife said that she hadn't slept for three weeks. And from the look of the bags under her eyes, I believed her <laughs> because of something she had heard, which was half true, which is sometimes even more devastating than whole untruth. Every time a change is announced or a decision is made, and folks, good folks, will assume that all they hear in the rumor mill is true, and it's not. All of these examples and dozens more that I could share remind me that we, as the people who follow after Jesus, need to learn and or remember how God speaks. 
how we listen for and discern the will of God in the face of all the mixed messages that are flying around out there. This is about knowing. How do we know in our knower that we know that we know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will in our lives? In the context of this sinful, broken world with its competing messages, I believe that we need to reclaim the deeper understanding of knowing and discernment. Is this as true here at Bemis Point as it is every other place I've ever lived? I thought so. When it comes to knowing and discerning God's will, I just want to share four very important things that I've learned, truths that I've learned over the years. Ready? Number one, keep your feelings in proper perspective. Feelings are neither right nor wrong, but what we do with them can be. Paul said, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. My wife had a saintly grandmother who is the sole reason she believes in Jesus today. My in-laws live very far away from God for a long period of time in their lives, but best grandmother would go pick up her grandchildren on Sunday night take them to her house so that they would worship with her on Sunday morning and then take them home Sunday afternoon. So the first, the reason that my wife heard about Jesus was because of her grandmother. And her grandmother used to tell her all the time, sweetheart, never base your faith on your feelings because they can't be trusted. Now feelings are important if we keep them in the right place. But we cannot build our lives upon them because they're like the weather here in New York. They are constantly changing. What I'm talking about is is illustrated by this train. It's important to keep the cars of this train in proper order for our faith experience to be the richest and our discernment to be the most consistent. And in this train, the facts come first. You see, the engine that drives true discernment are the facts The facts of our faith are firmly set and unchanging. They're rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing that we can do to possibly earn God's love and forgiveness in our lives. God has already done all that is necessary in Jesus. And this is the engine that pulls us through life. Faith comes second and is the fuel that drives the engine of our discernment. Faith is something we use every day. For example, how many of you really understand how this works? You don't understand it, but you can push a couple of buttons and talk to somebody on the other side of the world. That means you're placing faith in something that you don't understand and getting a benefit out of it. Um, This is my car key. How many in this room really understand how a car works? I have no clue. But I, yeah, there's a mechanic back here bragging. Okay. Anyway, but I have no clue. But I, but I put my key in the car, I have enough gas in it, and it will take me where I want to go. We use faith every day. Trusting in something that is real and will work the way that we have seen it work in other people's. And taking action on that experience. But... We sometimes, however, have difficulty exhibiting the same level of faith in Jesus. What do you believe in? When we place our faith in the fact 
of what God has already done for us in Jesus, it frees us for constantly searching for anything other than what is God's best for our lives. Our problem is that we often have more faith in other sources of truth rather than God's. But when we choose the right thing to place our faith in, it changes us from the inside out. Now, feelings should come after and be pulled along by the facts and faith. Feelings are like the weather here in central New York, or in western New York. Wait a little longer, and it will change. Now, like the three cars in this train, we need these in their proper order. And when we do that, when these three cars in the train are in their proper order, our lives more easily align with God's good, pleasing, and perfect will in our lives. And it's easy to discern. However, discernment often becomes more clouded when we get these three aspects of our faith experience mixed up. For example, many of us lead our lives through our feelings. We're just one big walking feeling. And that can be dangerous. You see, when feelings lead our faith expression, our, our discernment becomes clouded and unreliable because feelings come and go, often determined by shifting criteria and unstable circumstances. And we, when we allow our feelings to dictate what we do and do not believe, thus weakening our faith and how we act on our beliefs. There are folks that I've talked with in my 30-plus years in ministry who are just not feeling it anymore. And they start looking for a new place to feel it. And when I really push them, they really don't know what it is. See, real faith is so much more than just a feeling. When feelings are driving the engine of our lives, faith becomes circumstantial and facts become incidental, which means that our discernment can lead our lives into a train wreck. Anybody here ever experienced that? I have a friend whose 51-year life has been one bad decision after another, resulting in one train wreck after another because he orders his life around his feelings, and his feelings always trump the facts and faith in his relationship with God. So keep your feelings in proper perspective. The second <clears throat> is discerning God's will is best done in community. It's best done with other people. I know a woman in my, my present congregation who thinks it's her God-given responsibility to announce her discernment. And she always says, my discernment says which almost has almost always resulted in a train wreck of situations and relationships. But never once was she willing to bring that discernment under the accountability and authority of other people in the community. It's my experience that people who practice discernment apart from community and connection with God tend to be more subjective than objective, more willing to tell others what they know to be true rather than hear it from somebody else, and often see themselves as the sole arbiter of truth in a situation when the truth is they're really part of the problem. 
We need to have community of people around us who know us incredibly well and have the trust and authority to speak truth back into our lives. Sometimes this is a family. Other times it's an accountability partner. Other times it's a small group or a micro community. But, it, but, it, but this is not always the case because such honest community is a rare thing in our world. Who speaks truth and love into your life? Jack Welch is a retired CEO of, of uh, General Electric <clears throat> who would not be a sterling example of Christian virtue, I might add, but he does have an example about communication and community that's very important. He says that you need to have people in your life that will tell you the last 10%. See, all of us will share the 90%, the surfacey stuff with each other, but we need to have people in our lives who will love us enough to look us in the eye and risk friendship and relationship to say, I need to tell you something that nobody else is going to tell you because I love you and tell you the last 10%. Who speaks that kind of truth into your life? Paul speaks about this when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, we need other people to confirm our discernment. Several years ago, uh, one of the things I learned in my life is that I'm only half-sighted. That means I can only see 180 degrees. I got this whopping big blind spot back here. And I needed to, I needed to prayerfully and carefully call forward some people into my life that serve as my micro-community. They're almost like my life board of directors. And I have put them in this array around my life, and they all come from different perspectives. My wife is like the chairman of the board in this group, and there are these other folks, and their purpose is to look into my life past my false self, which I often show everybody else, to tell me the truth about my true self. You know why that's important? Because I know my heart. And I wanted to bring every aspect of my life under the leadership of Jesus. The best things in life are done together, in community, including discernment. The third thing I want to share with you is that true discernment begins in relationship. The deeper and stronger our relationship with Jesus, the more likely we are to live in step with his will. You see, we sometimes think that salvation is a singular event. We got saved, and we're going to go to heaven someday. And that's it. But a better understanding is that salvation begins with a singular event and is lived out in a lifetime of responding to, God, to the nudges of God's grace in our lives. The psalmist said it this way, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. And teach me, for you are my God, my Savior. My hope is in you all the day long. You see, salvation is not just a singular event. I got saved and that's it. Salvation is more than that. It's a movement from brokenness to wholeness that lasts a lifetime in relationship, drawing us into wholeness of being more and more like Jesus. It's the steady pursuit of the fact of what God has done for us that offers us grace through faith in Jesus. And that holds us steady when our feelings wane. You know, I mentioned before that I used to be at Asbury Seminary, 
And I left Asbury Seminary almost uh, a little over seven years ago. And you can Google about this, but it wasn't my idea to leave. Um, and, uh, and it was the most difficult train wreck experience I've ever had in my life. And I was in the middle of that experience. And, uh, and it was just devastating to me. And, uh, and I was angry with God. It was only when that group of people around me began to speak back into my life that I began to recognize that God had not caused it, but God was in it, and that God would not waste anything in my life, and that God was up to so many more consequential things than that experience. But it was that community of people that called that out of me. And the final thing I just want to share is that God's will is discerned best by practicing healthy habits. God is not likely to reveal his will in a burning bush. He already did that. Or in a rainbow set in the clouds. He already did that for somebody else. Or a dove that is carrying a carefully calligraphied scroll written just for you that will land on your windowsill tomorrow morning. But rather... God, God usually reveals his will to us as we practice healthy habits in the context of relationship in community. In this passage, Paul's describing a life living in the context of community that's driven by what God has done for us in Christ. It's deeply connected to Jesus and practicing healthy habits that enable us to be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul contrasts being drunk with wine to being filled with the Spirit. I want to be careful here. He is not saying that it's always wrong to drink alcohol. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that we shouldn't be under the control of a foreign substance. This applies to a lot more than just alcohol. How about prescription drugs? How about pornography? How about an affair? How about things that manipulate our time, our addiction to jobs, and all sorts of other stuff that controls us? We get rid of that so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The language here of being filled is the same language used to describe a a sail on a boat that gets filled uh, with the wind when it's put up. That's a great image because, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the wind of God's Spirit is always blowing in our lives. But we have to choose to put up our sails so that we'll be guided by that wind. If we're ignoring that voice, if we're wasting our time and living as foolish people, we miss out. It's not that living God's, it's not that God's unwilling to guide us, it's that we're unwilling to listen. Now, over the years, I've suggested five quick, practical suggestions for people who are confused about God's will for their lives but want to hoist the sail so they catch the Spirit. Ready? Number one, ask God in prayer. You see, God is always more willing to answer than we are to ask. Sometimes we don't ask because we don't want to hear what God is saying. Have you prayed? Second, seek God in Scripture. The Bible is the sufficient rule of all faith and practice. The more we study God's word, the more we learn God's will and ways. And God will never ask us to do something that is contrary to what he says in his word, ever. Have you studied and searched scripture? The third is to seek wise counsel. 
Sometimes we need to get advice from somebody else. But be careful who you surround yourself with. Surround yourself with trusted, seasoned persons who will speak the last 10% into your life from a selfless faith perspective. Who have you asked advice from as your advisors? The fourth one is to ask the church. Now, we're not going to ask you to come up here in front of a couple hundred people and do this. But in the context in which the Bible was written, the church was a small group of people, a micro-community of 10 to 20 people that did life together, where they were known and fully known. Have you asked the people who know you best? And then finally, if you've prayed about it, if you sought scripture about it, if you sought godly counsel about it, if you tested it with your community and you still don't have a glaring answer, use your head. God has given us the capacity to think and reason. Choose according to Scripture. The longer we live and follow after Jesus, the more we will want to do God's will, God's way, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will in our lives. Now, living this kind of life involves discernment. The longer I live and follow after Jesus, the more I want to know God's will, God's way, in my life. And living that kind of life involves discernment. Friends, discernment will take time. It's done best in relationship with Jesus and the community with others. It's rooted in facts. It's formed in faith. It's not easily swayed by feelings. It's revealed in healthy habit and it's a lost art in our day. Discernment is really important. Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand what God's will is. The leadership of your church is seeking God with all that they know. As they begin to unveil that to you, will you do the same? Because the future is God's. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this word from Paul, for our day. We want to do your will. We want to follow in your way. Teach us your ways, O God, and help us to walk in them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.